husband had his and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean, singing how marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be, how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. He took my sins and my sorrows, He made them very old. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone, singing how marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love. My joy through the ages to sing of His love for me, singing how marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Everybody singing how marvelous. And my song shall ever be How marvelous, how wonderful Is my Savior's love for me Father in heaven, we know you are always near We trust in your power to create, to sustain, and to enable We gather here on your Sabbath day And we bring our minds and a desire to worship you We bring all that we are to you, so that we might experience your touch in our lives. We come simply. We come as we are. We confess that we are lost in this world before we met you. We ask you to touch us this day with your blessing. We ask you to guide us and strengthen us with your gentle power. Praise your name. Praise the name of Jesus, our Savior, who came as the Son of Man to free us from sin and invite us into your family. We pray as Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen indeed. We choose to follow Jesus. That's what I plan to preach about over the next few weeks, this choice we make to follow Jesus. But first I want to explore one particular related issue, one reason I chose to follow Jesus years ago when I was a young man. It was a defining issue for me but one that I try to be careful with and handle gently. The issue is an approach to God that often impedes a person's relationship with God. And it's something that often raises the eyebrows of people who hear me talk about it for the first time. 
What is it? <laughs> it is this. I try not to be religious. As humans, we have a special tendency, a natural tendency to pursue spirituality. We have this innate desire to please God. It only makes sense that God has placed within you a hunger to know him. It's natural. People feel it. But sometimes in our arrogance, we try to elevate ourselves to God's level using our own efforts. And that doesn't work. Rather, in order to worship God, we need to know him. But we can only know him as he has revealed himself to us. In the scriptures, the face of God is revealed to us clearly and consistently from cover to cover. The gospel message is the good news that offers us a path to have a relationship, God, a relationship with God where God is the one who provided the initiative and the means for completing and perfecting our relationship with him. I often say God completes our humanity when we respond with faith, surrender, and obedience to Messiah Jesus. It wasn't surprising then that Jesus railed against the empty religion that controlled the people in his day as he ministered throughout Judea. And it should not be surprising to realize that we, too, should confront empty religion when we find it in our day. Because religion can be an adversary. Religion can chase away God's presence. The Bible says a lot about religion. A lot. Religion was the chief adversary of Jesus as he walked this earth. One story that reveals a lot about religion, and there are a lot of stories. The one I like, is, I like a lot, is found back in the Old Testament in the first few chapters of the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. I like to read these. There was a, na a man named Elkanah who lived in Ramah in the region of Zuf in the hill country of Ephraim. He was the son of Jeraham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf of Ephraim. Elkanah had two wives, Hannah and Penina. And trust me, I had to go look up how to say Penina. <laughs> Penina had children, but Hannah did not. Each year, Elkanah would travel to Shiloh. This is before Jerusalem, okay? Shiloh was where the tent of meeting was before the time of Jerusalem, the time of the monarchy of, of Israel. Each year, Elkanah would travel to Shiloh to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of Heaven's armies at the tabernacle. The, the priests of the Lord at that time were the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. On the days Elkanah presented his sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to Penina and each of her children. And though he loved Hannah, he would give her only one choice portion because the Lord had given her no children. So Penina would taunt Hannah and make fun of her because the Lord had kept her from having children. 
Year after year, it was the same. Panina would taunt Hannah as they went to the tabernacle. Each time, Hannah would be reduced to tears and would not even eat. Year after year. Why are you crying, Hannah? Elkanah would ask. Why aren't you eating? Why be downhearted just because you have no children? You have me. Isn't that better than having ten sons? Oh my. (laughs) Hannah seemed to have everything a woman could wish for in life. She was beautiful. She was admired. And her husband, Elkanah, loved her. Every year, Elkanah's good financial position afforded them the opportunity to travel to Shiloh, to the place of worship, to offer sacrifices to God. And Elkanah made sure that Hannah felt special. He told her that she was the best thing that had ever happened to him. He said, Hannah, with you I'm fulfilled. You don't need children for me to love you. Besides, I already have them with Panina. Oops. Hannah's face probably turned rigid when Elkanah spoke words like that. Elkanah tried to uh, assuage the situation. He'd say, sweetheart, you have me. Can't Can't you be happy just by loving me? Yes, to an extent. Hannah had her loving husband, and she had her religion. She had a good life but she didn't have children. This particular year was really difficult for her. They had gone to Shiloh and made their offerings. It was a good time of worship. But as the family ate their dinner that evening, Hannah hardly touched her food. Panina, her children, were playing as she returned from the kitchen with dessert. Now, forgive me if I embellish a little bit. I'm just trying to set a scene here. This all could easily have happened, these little minor details, like bringing the dessert. Panina kissed Elkanah, and while she leaned on his shoulder, she looked at her children, and just before she sat down, she cast a conniving look at Hannah. Hannah got up from the table, put a shawl over her head, and opened the door. And startled, Elkanah said, or asked her, where are you going? To the Lord's tent, she answered. But Hannah, the worship service is already over. There is no one there. Hannah, wait. The door closed. The only thing Hannah heard was the sound of a muffled, or Elkanah, the only thing Elkanah heard was the sound of a muffled sob. Hannah went to the Lord's tent, opened the curtain, she went in. She was probably guided by the light of some menorahs. Maybe she leaned against one of the poles holding up the tent. She tried to pray. She said a few old memorized verses she had learned from her father. She wished the priest was there to guide her. She felt awkward. She was uncomfortable. She had nothing in her hands to offer. She had nothing to say. Finally, she blurts out, Lord Adonai. That's all that could come out of her lips. As she sank back into the long silence of her life, the silence of fear, the silence of routine, the silence of religion. Each moment seems like an hour. She'd been in that tent many times before, following following the rituals, 
just like everyone else was doing. But she had never felt the presence of God who lovingly wanted to hear her request. She could only offer the silence of her hurting heart. The routine of religion leaves us sterile. It's bland. And that's why on Sundays, all over the world, prayers are recited, sermons are preached, and people leave those church buildings, buildings without ever having crossed the boundary of religion. The line that separates tradition from an encounter with God. Most people don't even realize it. They go to church without really expecting to find Jesus or to meet God there. It's all about the ritual, the program that must continue. The tradition must be perpetuated. There's no contact, no interaction, no intimacy with God. Weeks pass unchanged, month after month, year after year. So it was, as we read in verse 7, year after year. So it was when she went up to the house of the Lord. Is it possible that Hannah went to worship God every year without experiencing any change? Yes, it is possible to remain unchanged because religion is sterile. Religion voids the power of God in believers until we decide to cross the line from ritual to real worship. And that is what Hannah was about to do. She cried out about Panina's schemes, the beauty of the children, not her own, the fear of being cast aside. You know what was there? She lamented the lost years and she cried out about the emptiness of religion. Her cry opened a space within her for faith. In her anguish, she touched God. And in that touch, grace overflowed. The name Hannah means, some of you may, may know, grace. Hannah means grace. Grace makes possible the impossible. Grace touches us and allows us to find God's presence. Suddenly, the sadness marking Hannah's face went away. Eli, the priest, noticed her, and after some talk, she told him, Let your servants find favor in your sight. So the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. We read in verse 18, Hannah had discovered the presence of God. She was never the same again. God granted her the desire of her heart, she gave birth to a son whom she named Samuel. From that day in the tent, Hannah worshipped a living God, not just an idea. Heaven is waiting for people who dare to cross the line, to cry before God. God is looking for transparency in those who come near to him. He wants us to bear our souls. He wants us to know him. God has a plan for each of us. Not only was Samuel the answer to Hannah's need, Samuel also became the leader in a move on God's part to confront Israel's empty religious tradition at this 
moment in time in their history. And then we can really see the characteristics of empty religion in the story of Eli's sons. In those days, the judges still ruled Israel. Eli was judge and high priest of the nation. His sons were also priests in the house of God in the city of Shiloh. They held the most important positions in Israel's worship services. They grew up in the house of God. They knew the tabernacle's operating manuals. They knew the liturgies. They were ritual experts. Scripture tells us they were worthless men who did not know the Lord. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. Eli's sons were educated in the tabernacle, but they were corrupt. They had religion, but they did not have a relationship. They were high priests because of their social position. They may have been rubbed with holy oil, but they suffered from spiritual ignorance. They were morally bankrupt. They were the prototype of people today who are born into the church, but who are never born again into the family of God. Religious people practice the rituals of religion, but they do not know God. And that is characteristic number one of religion. Empty religion, I should say. In empty religion, people know the rituals, but they do not know God. When an Israelite at the time offered sacrifices to God, the priests were present. And they would send their servants to send, stand next to the worshipers who were offering the sacrifice. And why? The priests took the best part of the meat being sacrificed. Eli's sons took advantage of their position to satisfy their own desires, their disregard and arrogance toward the people and toward the worship of God eroded the integrity of the entire nation, of the entire priesthood indeed. They had no fear of God. Obviously, they did not know God. The altar had no value to them. And because of them, the people themselves began to disregard the very worship of God. It became an infection. We read in verse 17, the sin of these young men, the sons of Eli, was very serious in the Lord's sight, for they treated the Lord's offerings with contempt. Lack of respect for God's presence is a second characteristic of empty religion. Eli's sons were busy with their religious duties, but they did not speak on behalf of God. They did not guide the people to God's presence. They were experts in religious rites, R-I-T-E-S. But they couldn't help the people discern God's will for their lives. Are you sensitive to the directing power of the Holy Spirit? Do you recognize the Holy Spirit and respond to its direction? Do you walk in the path of purity? Are you growing, maturing as a Christian? The Holy Spirit is a transforming power that can change you to be more like Messiah Jesus, who saved you and leads you to a life of friendship with God. 
Cultivating God's presence is the spiritual action that will take you into a deeper, far deeper relationship with Him. Respect for the presence of God. Have you ever noticed there's a difference between singing hymns and actually worshiping God through singing hymns? <laughs> yeah, try it. When you're singing a hymn, just let yourself go into the presence of God. It's a level of spiritual sensitivity that the Holy Spirit wants to you to have mature within you. Have you learned to love God's presence? Verse 22 gives us a third characteristic of empty religion. This is really a bad one. Moral corruption. You know this is so true. Now Eli was very old, and he heard everything his sons did to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. These priests defied all respect for God. They even slept with the women who served in the tent of worship. And you know this is true, that religion hides filth underneath its robes. It's true. Religious pride makes us believe we are better because we do our religious duties. Religious pride is all about us. Religious pride ignores God's presence. This is not what you want to do. If you ignore God's presence, you extinguish His power. And then you can easily find yourself submerged in sin. People who are mired in religion do not live victorious Christian lives. They lack joy. They're not spiritually maturing. They're not learning about the truths that are found in the Bible. Most often they are unaware of their lack of spiritual victory. Neither Eli's sons nor the people of Israel knew how far they were from their faith until something dramatic happened shortly thereafter in this in this story, they were at war at the time with the Philistines. So let's read what happened next in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. At that time, Israel was at war with the Philistines. The Israelite army was camped near Ebenezer, and the Philistines were at Aphek. The Philistines attacked and defeated the army of Israel, killing 4,000 men. It was a disastrous defeat. The Israelites responded to that defeat by going to God. I'm not going to read all the rest of the story. I'll tell you what happened. They thought they went to God. They sent for the Ark of the Covenant. 
their most sacred artifact in their worship of God. They brought the Ark of the Covenant to the camp that encouraged them. But nothing could stop the inevitable fatal outcome. Neither the Ark nor nor Israel's shouts of joy, of praise. I shouldn't have said joy, I should have said praise. Nothing had any impact. Israel, in the story, Israel then returned to battle, this time feeling confident because they carried the Ark of the Covenant with them, which they believed to be the very seat of Almighty God. But the Ark no longer represented the holiness of God's presence among them. Thousands more died. Scripture tells us another 30,000. Brutal time. Including Eli's two sons. And even more, the Ark was taken by the Philistines in that battle. You see, a symbol of God does not guarantee his presence, or his power. That generation of Israelites did not have victory. The Philistines defeated Israel because Israel was spiritually rotten. And when the news reached Eli, he fell backwards and he died. But the story didn't end there, thank goodness. God already had a plan of restoration in the works. His eyes had been set on Samuel. What a difference between the ways of Samuel's sons, of Eli's sons and young Samuel's, Samuel's ways. Eli's sons disrespected God's presence. Samuel ministered to the Lord. Eli's sons disrespected the offerings given to God. Samuel learned to minister even in the smallest tasks found in the tent of of meeting, the tent of worship. He took care of the menial tasks. He cleaned up blood from sacrifices. He swept the ashes. He put oil on the lamps. He polished the menorahs. He polished the utensils that were used. While Eli's sons slept with the women attendants, Samuel rested near the ark of God. And one evening before that awful defeat of the, the Israelites suffered, God looked for Samuel. While Eli slept oblivious to God's despair and his anger at the nation's religious arrogance, and while his corrupt evil sons abused their position, God was looking for someone who was still interested in his presence. God found who he was looking for. Samuel was asleep in his presence, lying close to the ark. So this is before the battle, when they were wiped out. This is what we read in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 4. Then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, Here I am. He wanted to be in God's presence. Hannah's son found the God of his mother. 
God found a vessel, a new prophet and priest who honored him. And because of Samuel's leadership in this nation of Israel, a whole new generation would place their faith ahead of religion. Samuel is a wonderful example for us. He represents people who leave their empty religion and find a place before the glorious presence of our Lord God. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness for our frivolous attitude in your presence. May we be faithful to live in your presence, to serve you, and to know you, to know you like a father, as Jesus taught us. The best way to know you is to know a father. May you raise up from this generation, our generation, an army of faithful followers, men and women, after your own heart. Amen. Hallelujah. Is it?
I will.